0: On the panel on our NZ National, Wallace Chapman with Anna Dean and David Farrow today. Good to be with you. The Public Service Commission has found a fire and emergency NZ has not done enough to fix its bad culture, and stronger leadership is needed at all levels. In April, the Commission announced it had appointed a Belinda Clark QSO to lead the review to assess what changes had been made. Since FENS, a fire and emergency NZ, was found by an independent judge to have a culture of bullying and harassment. The agency's behaviour and conduct office, which was established in response to the judgment, was falling short, and the new report has found poor behaviour still a problem. Well, this is Tony Satorius, senior volunteer firefighter. Tony Kiora. G'day. G'day, and also you run Volunteer, which is the largest online support group for volunteer firefighters. You know this issue very, very well. I mean, this goes back years, Tony. In 2018, Judge Coral Shaw reported there were unacceptable levels of sexism, racism and homophobia. What do you make of what came out today?
1: Oh, I, I think it's great. And I think that people who have been involved in advocacy in this area are, are just delighted that um, Belinda Clark has done such a thorough job and such a practical job, actually, at understanding what needs to actually physically change to make things work better. So it's, it's really great.
0: Bullying and harassment. Uh, I mean, are you disappointed that the, the these systemic issues are still present, actually, after all these years?
1: Oh, <laughs> Look, you know, volunteer fire brigades are are very scattered physically. You know, there's over 700 of them in New Zealand and they're in every little small town and place. So they're they're really different from each other. So I think, you know, um, these issues are are, are quite probably, you know, a lot of brigades are absolutely fine and and really positive places. But a few things aren't great. And um, not enough has been done when that's come up in the past. And I think that's created quite an unhealthy culture.
0: For you, it even got to the stage, I understand, Tony, where VoliNet, which is, you know, the support group of volunteer firefighters online, VoliNet stopped recommending people to Fens with their complaints.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, We we, um, set up a, a separate support group for people who were going through the process, and the advice that we were getting back from that group was that it was just consistently not leading people anywhere useful. It was with a heavy heart, you know, because when the BCO was set up, we really had very high hopes for it. Um, you know, in theory, it's great. But I think, as the report says, in practice, it just hasn't really done the business. Complaints have been dragging on for months or years in some cases and just haven't been ending up in a place that's made things better for the complainant. It's just, you know, been no good for them. And and so, yeah, with, you know, in good conscience, we couldn't uh, recommend that people proceed that way.
0: Good. Uh, and that was one of the things one of the reports said, didn't they? It was basically um, the FENS process was very unwieldy and very slow. You had people, I mean, over a third of complaints a year old, Tony.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised it's that few, to be honest. I mean, I've, I've been involved in a number of cases, and, and that's normal. And, you know, after a year, most often they just kind of flutter out. I, I be interested to know actually how many complainants just, just give up and leave before they reach a resolution. I'd say it would be a significant number. The, the price for individual firefighters to complain is is very high. You know, in, in my experience, many of them end up leaving their brigades as a result. And, and because often these are in little towns, um, people have even had to leave their own towns because they felt, you know, that everybody's kind of giving them the BDI and thinks that they've been mean to the people they're complaining about, who obviously are are often older and very established men in those communities.
0: All right, let's go to our panel on this. Shall we start with you, David? What's uh, your take, questions, thoughts on this?
2: I'd be interested, Tony, in your perspective if you, you know whether the prevalence of bullying and harassment is around the same for the volunteer brigades and the professionally staffed ones because I guess I have a working theory that we're, it's not people's main job. It may be harder in terms of standards. Um, so do we know anything about whether it, it's more prevalent in one type or the other or if it's a problem across the, the whole fire service or fire and emergency service?
1: it 's difficult to have a really accurate picture of of the numbers overall, but I mean my impression is that it's there are similar issues happening uh in both services, but you know I would say that obviously in terms of sexual harassment, the majority of the victims of that are women. And there are more women volunteer firefighters as a percentage than there are career firefighters. It's about 15% of volunteers and only 3% at last report for career firefighters. So so there are more women in volunteer brigades, um, but often still in quite a small minority.
0: Anna?
3: Yeah, I think it's fascinating, and I'm so grateful for the work that um, all of these people do for our communities all over the country, particularly here in Tetaoihu and um, Nelson, Tasman. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, like another hot summer ahead. Um, I find it fascinating because it feels like these quite systemic changes are happening because more women are moving into these spaces, Um, and, you know, the complaints process. These have been these old bastions, as you say, often in small towns of older white men and um, I guess this is only a positive move because of this. How might we support the people that are in these places, in these positions as members of the public? Is there anything that we can do to show our appreciation, I guess,
1: It's a kind question and I really appreciate it. You know, I really want to say to the public that I think that most volunteer fire brigades in most places are safe and positive environment. That's been my experience of them. But I think that when somebody is willing to put their head up and say that they've had that kind of problem, it's a hard thing to do that and that would be a a really great thing if they could be, you know, believed for a start, you know, at least, you know, taken seriously and, and, and supported because... The fact is, you know, uh, there's been a whole, a large number of people who who have not been well supported uh, and have really paid really high personal prices just for trying to do something positive in their community.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I I mean, the review heard examples where bullying behaviour, Tony, uh, had been overlooked, downplayed or excused uh, because the perpetrator is perceived to be a quote unquote hero firefighter or an important manager. Or a long service volunteer with deep connections into the local community, maybe a union member. I mean, does this speak toward requiring really a whole culture change?
1: Um, yes, I have heard of that dynamic, and I think that that happens within the brigades as well as you know from from the outside community's point of view. Um, particularly, volunteer fire brigades often have. Um, People in charge of them, fire chiefs who've been in that role for a really, really long time, you know, 20 years or more than that. And that's what I think one of the reasons why um, Belinda Clark's report uh, recommends that there be a five year term limit that can be extended, but every five years it's reviewed. Just I think to bring a bit more vitality and a bit of modernization to that. Younger volunteer firefighters are, you know, like like everyone else, they, they have a perhaps a newer more modern point of view about inclusiveness and that kind of thing. Um, and, and so do many older firefighters, but some don't. And, you know, I think it's probably one of the reasons why the culture's been quite slow to move.
0: Because that was also recommended, wasn't it, um, the diversity to reflect, actually, the general population.
1: Yeah, it, and it certainly should. And it certainly does. You know, there are brigades in New Zealand that are nearly entirely made up of women and and, and you know, many other communities... Just, just as you'd hope that there would be but um you know traditionally it has been as as one of your panelists mentioned it's been fairly white and and, and very male and that's um but it, it, in some ways, it's, it's a bit like the 70s or the 80s in some little brigades right. some little places, you know. Interesting. It just, yeah. just hasn't changed.
0: It's so good to have you on the programme, Tony. Uh, I really appreciate you um, uh, explaining this for us. Just finally, I mean, you're a senior volunteer firefighter. You've been in the sector now for, look, many, many years. It's your passion. It's your life. Yeah, nearly 30, do, yeah. Really. Do you still enjoy it? And would you recommend those listing across the country to become a volunteer firefighter, as Anna said, Pretty
1: important. I absolutely would. And you know, and and I want to assure people who are thinking about that but perhaps are nervous about it that there are many of us, many of us who are absolutely determined to create this change and, and want to support you. So yeah, look, I think it's a safe place. We're working really hard to make sure that it is. But you know, fans need to do their part. When something isn't right, they they need to actually make sure that the processes that follow that are are Strong and quick and justice-focused, you know, actually make things better. I think you know they'll sort it out, and um, we can continue to do what we've always done, which which is just try to do a positive thing for the communities that we're in.
0: Good on you, Tony. Thank you. That's Tony Sartorius there, senior volunteer firefighter. Something that uh, I mean, it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing to be involved in, right, David? Have you ever been in volunteer firefighting? Ever had the desire to? Um,
2: Never been involved in, and probably not at the age now, sadly, where I could, but um, huge respect for those who do it because they're the lifeblood, you know, of those communities which are so far from, you know, the, the cities.
0: Right. 18 pass for the panel on RNZ National. Anna Dean and David Farrer today. or well, the rush to pass new laws is eroding the public's Trust. This was a very interesting opinion piece today, uh, that important bills that merit deep reflection are not rushed, but rather given due attention. So why the rush? There have been some significant pieces of legislation on the table recently, notably the three waters reforms, which will become law, passing its final hurdle in Parliament today, with only Labour's support, National Act, the Green Party and Te Pate Māori all voted Against it. Dr. Anne Barsley is the Deputy Director of COI2, the Centre for Informed Futures, based at Auckland University, who co wrote this piece in Stuff. Dr. Barsley, kia ora. Kia ora. Uh, Look, explain this a little. How do you think rushing things is eroding trust?
4: Um, it's really about the processes uh, that don't allow the public to really understand. Uh, and get the heads around um, what's going on. I mean, the three waters is is clearly a source of public confusion, and uh, the processes of consultation have not really remedied that confusion. And the other example that we we gave in the in the piece was the public media bill, which
1: mm.
4: is a source of contention among stakeholders. I don't know if the public is as engaged. But the processes for all of these consultations are usually very quick and quite hard to do. Even for you know for the likes of us, we sent in quite an extensive um, submission to the public media bill, and and that took a long time and and a lot of effort. And most people can't do that to get their to get enough information, the proper information to actually um, make an informed submission and understand the process and and having it seem like it goes quite quickly then um, just will erode that trust in the decision making processes
0: so it's fair to say uh, in your view uh, and that the public hasn't been brought along for the ride with for example um, the three waters bill
4: yeah I think we there are other ways that um, we can engage the public and we need to start thinking about these new methods. Uh, we've, we've been developing some participatory and deliberative um, methods to work in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, that um, I think would help if we could, could get these established as, as better processes for consultation, such as um, the uh, Citizens' Assembly we recently conducted with Watercare.
0: Right, Okay. Well, I know, David, you'll have views on this. Jump in. Yeah,
2: well, I think a key thing with the use of urgency, um, and this is an area of research and written on, is urgency isn't always bad if it's just Parliament sitting a bit later at night to get through the workload. But where it's especially bad, and in fact in some of the research I've done, I criticise the former national-led government uh, for overusing this, is where you shortcut the process. Is where you don't have a select committee process at all, or you only have it for a month, etc. That's when it's bad, because not only are public not getting the say, you're not actually getting the MPs having enough time to see how they can improve the bill. And, you know, it got better for a while, but we've slipped back into bad habits where we're seeing urgency used to almost bypass the public being able to have their say.
4: Anne? Oh, I would agree with that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and, you know, these are really complex issues where, where there's a lot of um, values components to those decisions and with the public not being able to get their their head around it in that um, span of time is not gonna not, not gonna help their trust in the in the final decision.
0: All right. Uh Anna Dean.
4: Yeah, hi Ann.
3: It's um interesting. I I keep wondering how much disinformation and misinformation is playing a part in in a lot of these issues, particularly around the Three Waters bill. It does um seem like obviously you're not going to get every process right and this has gone through uh, under urgency to actually try and get some kind of resolution Um, and it does seem really like how, I mean, a citizens' assembly, of course, fantastic, absolutely love that, but you know we're facing an election year next year, and the the task of the government to actually tackle this disinformation seems to be such a hurdle i mean how How
4: big a part do you think that plays in everything? I do think it plays a huge part um, and you know this is so. That's where the, the, the a new public media entity and a strong one would be really useful. I mean, we do need to combat this misinformation that's out there. And you're right, particularly with Three Waters. Um, so I think, yeah, the process needs to be different as well, given just, that there's a, a lot of that.
0: Dr. Balaji, I'm just wondering too. Uh, is this a reminder? And let's take three waters again, uh, that no matter how much we say what matters is policy, it's the way, it's the message that's equally important. I I think there was an article by advertising uh, agency guy Vaughan Davis. He said, would things have changed if we called it the Clean and Affordable Water Entities Bill? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, someone's saying here on, on the text, there's no confusion with me. Clean up Meola Creek, um, better sewage, uh, cleaner water. If we had more messaging about (laughs) what it's actually about, might we have gone some way to better public understanding, Dr Barsley?
4: I think absolutely. It is those perceptions that are not um, in line with reality, and I think... That's, you know, part of these processes are not, it's the messages that aren't quite right. They're not getting to the people and things are being misconstrued in social media. Uh, So public are are even more confused and divided over that. Hmm. How important
0: is it to have high trust in our democratic model, do you think?
4: Well, I think it's pretty key. It's not, um, (laughs) it will fall over with, without a lot of trust. And, you know, in New, in New Zealand, we still do have a fairly high level of trust relative to other places, but clearly there's a lot that's undermining it at the moment. Um, and this mis and disinformation is, is also driving a wedge. And all these little pieces, including um, things that seem rushed through when people don't understand or felt like they haven't had their say, is just going to push that further
0: Good on you, Dr. Barsley ora. That's Dr. Ann Barnsley, the Deputy Director of COI2, the Centre for Informed Futures. I wanna just not a poll so much as a snapshot. Give me a snapshot across the mortar there. So this uh Three Waters uh bill, uh it's uh it's become law passed the final hurl in Parliament today. What from what do you know of the three waters? Do you support it? Yes or no? Text me two one. I'd be very interested to know, do you support it or do you not support it? Text me right now, 2101. So from what we know of around the panel on this, Anna, do you support it?
3: Well, I was concerned that the privatisation, you know, safety measure was removed, um, which is why the Greens didn't vote in support. And already we have ACT talking about privatising, um, <laughs> you know, all, they're already talking well, about that as an some opportunity. Some sort of partnership, to to
0: some it. sort of partnership they're talking about.
3: Yeah, yeah. But no, that that's very worrying. Oh, but, look but, at the text
0: go. Wow. Yeah. All right. <laughs> OK, so we yes do, or no? We do
3: need to... Well, uh, yes, we do need to fix this. We do need reform. We need to sort out this water issue. So, yes, in support of it. Okay, that's a it. yes,
0: David Farrow. Uh, no
2: surprise, i a strong no, as is now every party in Parliament, bar Labor.
0: All right. Well, we will tell you at five to f- five to five on our little snapshot poll of. Uh, uh, whether or not you support as stands the Three Waters Bill. 27 passed for the panel. David Farrar, Anna Dean with me. I've got a question for you. What does Wordle, the Australian Open, Queen Elizabeth and Guacamole all have in common, I tell you? They were among some of New Zealand's top Google searches of 2022. Other search items, uh, other more solemn searches were like for your crane locations of interest. There were also questions of how to um, find matadiki, uh and how to become single was another one as well. So um, do you recall, Anna, remembering something interesting that happened this year that got you Googling?
3: Ooh. Um, probably actually recently the, the Black Ferns and the World Cup um, yep. actually piqued my interest, and also I think a stand-up was definitely search terms around Matariki and meanings and how the public really embraced that and investigated more into the actual meaning of the particular stars. And it, it, Yeah, it feels like a very significant cultural moment from the year.
0: It's amazing to go down this list, and I guess that's why I want to talk about it, to actually see what a huge year it has been and what just a few words can tell you About a year. Overall, you had locations of interest. If you were to say locations of interest five years ago, people would go, what on earth are you talking about? Or Mm -hmm. Ukraine. Or global figures. What have we got? Chris Rock. King Charles. Um, New Zealanders. We had not only Ruby Tui, we also had Clark Gayford for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That'll be all that. Yeah.
3: misinformation is in prison. <laughs> That's right.
0: Yes. Ankle right. bracelet, yes. All, <laughs> All the yeah. myths. News. We had Costco. Uh, we also had iPhone 14. Uh, we had Tonga. Um, David, what of this for you? Well, Wordle was one of the ones that struck
2: me when I started to see people sharing their responses. I Googled Wordle and was fairly addicted to it for three or four months. I think it's a pity they've cut the list off just before the end of the year, because in the last week, I, like I think many other New Zealanders, have started Googling for ChatGPT, which is this amazing, not sure if you've talked about it on the platform yet, um, but this amazing AI device where you can ask questions and it gives you two or three page essays in response that you really would not tell there. So in the last few days, I've just seen that go from nowhere to, to everywhere. So as you say, it's a, it's a history of the... The
0: year yeah and I'm still amazed uh in food uh number one was guacamole Anna. Uh, who I who, think, who I still think makes what, gua- that, I mean <laughs> a lot of people
3: make guacamole but i can't I can't think what cultural moment that was in relation to I thought it was no. interesting as well that in the in the list there was euphoria the um the television show so yeah. obviously that had a big moment but guacamole no I was I was trying to think what a reference might have been, but I It just I feels play. so
0: mid eighties. Or maybe that's because I'm recalling my Dunedin Flat Days where Guacamole was all the rage. I mean for Couchier, David but not guacamole. <laughs>
4: No. Lots of no. getting
0: married. That's <laughs> right. Um, very good. You're on the panel. Uh, NZ National. Quite a response to regarding uh, the what do you what do you say when someone is having a baby? One of the things we normally ask a pregnant person a listener asked is. Um, uh, do you know what you're having yet, a boy or a girl? Is it still okay to ask? Or is that expired binary thinking? Big response. Sophie says pregnant people get asked the same questions over and over again. Ask a question that really matters. How are you Mm. feeling? Is there anything you need? Pregnancy can be bloody hard and scary. Anna?
3: I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. No, I think that sounds like a very good idea.